0: Thank you, Colin. Um, Folks, have that passage open before you there, Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at the section which Colin's just read, but also for the look at the rest of that chapter. So from verses 14 to 44, we're going to try and um, see what Luke's telling us about Jesus. So let me pray just before we uh, think about these verses. Father God, if it's true that you sent your son into this world, that he might rescue us and bring us back to you, then nothing is more important than for us to see Jesus for who he really is. Help us this morning as we pay attention to your word given to us to see more of Jesus and to live better in the light of of what you've shown us. Amen. Amen. Folks, I'm just going to flash an image up on the screen here and I'm looking for your reaction. Um, hands up if we love Marmite. Okay, a few people do. Wasn't sure. Hands up if the experience that you've had of Marmite has left you scarred for life and you hate it. More so, yeah. People who are sitting on the fence, is that because you've never tasted it? Yeah, people are nodding. Marmite is, is well known as a thing that forces a strong reaction from people. You love it or you hate it. You don't tend to go through life saying, Marmite, it's, it's all right. It's, it's not all right. You know, go, go and buy some, try it, and you'll see what I mean. It, you'll, you'll come down on one side or the other. People can be a little bit like that. Uh, You can say, oh, he's a bit like Marmite. Um, Somebody this morning just mentioned to me Donald Trump dividing America, dividing this congregation possibly, or, or maybe not. But there are times in life when we're forced to react one way or another. And maybe a surprising thing is that Jesus is like Marmite. He's one of those people who divides people. He is, at least, if you take seriously what the Bible says about him, and that's what we're going to see here today. We shouldn't really be surprised by this this uh, nature of Jesus, this response that he drew from people, where he divided them one way or another. It uh, looks already given us plenty of reasons to expect that he, he recorded, first of all, uh, a mysterious prophecy that the old guy in the temple, Simeon, spoke about Jesus when he was just eight days old. He said, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. Some are going to rise, some are going to fall because of this child. He also recorded John the Baptist's words, and we thought about these a few weeks ago. He has a winnowing fork in his hand. Jesus separates people. So these passages, if, if we've taken them seriously, are preparing us for a, a Jesus who who maybe has this effect, where he's not uh, come everybody, but maybe a bit more of a, a dividing sort of a character. The, these passages uh, we're looking at this morning, we're going to see three different incidents. We're going to put them all together, and we're going to test this idea, I suppose, which I've just raised. So chapter 4, verse 14, once you get there, you're getting to a new section in Luke's gospel. Um, from here right through until chapter 9, verse 50, you're in a period where Jesus is now active. He's in ministry. This is really the start of Jesus' ministry. Everything we've done before now has been introductory, getting us ready for Jesus' public ministry. But now, now we're go. And right through to chapter 9, verse 50, he's doing stuff in his home area, the Galilean ministry, we might call it. And we're going to take a a moment just now to picture this scene, uh, this passage, which Colin read for us. Everyone in Nazareth knew Jesus, okay? It's a small village. He'd grown up among them. They had known him as the son of Joseph. Joseph was a carpenter stroke builder. Uh, It's hard to know exactly what what he was doing, but somewhere in that territory. And these people had seen Jesus grow up with his younger brothers and sisters. Jesus was an older brother. The gospels tell us that. Uh, They'd seen him help his father in the trade. They'd seen him as a great kid and a a great young man. But recently, he'd become a bit of a celebrity in the roundabout area because he'd left home shortly before But rumors about what he'd done had kept coming back home from the villages around Galilee. People were talking about this brilliant teaching that he did and these incredible things that he did, mostly healing people. So whenever word got out that that Jesus was in town, that he was back home, everyone wanted to see him. Question. You want to see Jesus, where do you look for him? Well, that's easy. If it's the Sabbath day, you go and look for him in the synagogue. Ever since he was a kid, that's the place where he always headed. Didn't we see that a few weeks ago where he said himself as a 12-year-old he wanted to be in his father's house? We can't be entirely sure what that synagogue service was like, but it it wasn't like our service. It would have been quite different in lots of different respects. So somebody probably read a a portion from the law, the the first five books of the Bible, the book of Moses. And it would have been read read in Hebrew, which is the, the language the Old Testament was written in, but not the language Jesus and his contemporaries spoke. They spoke Aramaic. So it had to be translated. So reading in Hebrew, translated into Aramaic. And after this, Jesus probably stood up. Um, It was a way that a visiting rabbi would say, "Um, I'm willing to speak at this point. And if a visiting rabbi stood up to speak, it was a courtesy that you paid. You said, yeah, okay, we'd love to hear what you say. So so this particular day, in this particular synagogue, it was a no-brainer. Our guy has come home, and he wants to speak. Of course we want to hear what Jesus bar Joseph, the local boy made good, our rabbi has to say. The synagogue leader would have handed him a scroll, um, so they didn't use books, big things. If you imagine two rolls of uh, wallpaper, Uh, rolled together one in each hand you roll it out and you start to read we don't know if Jesus chose the passage that he read or whether it was assigned to him but anyway here's what he read from Isaiah 61 the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor Jesus reads it he rolls up the scroll gives it back to the attendant and he did what a rabbi in that situation would do he sat down to share his message a reflection on the passage which he just read and you could hear a pin drop What's he going to say? And Luke doesn't tell us. I love the way the Bible guys write there. You know, he doesn't tell us the sermon. He doesn't tell us what Jesus said that day. What he does instead is he gives us an eight-word sentence that summarizes what Jesus said that day. Today, this scripture is filled in your hearing, and the crowd are gobsmacked. Because they knew what he was saying. They knew that he was saying that Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph's son, the guy they'd run the streets with, the guy who'd built their kitchen table and put up their neighbor's extension, he was saying that these incredible, these beautiful evocative words from Isaiah were all about him. And that he was the one who was going to make these incredible promises of God come true. The people in this knew that if, if he was saying these things and that if he'd come to do all these things to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that was shorthand for saying that the Messiah's come. This is the start of something entirely different and new. This is the start of a new age breaking in, the time when God's chosen king would come and set God's people free. So we've been trying to picture the scene and we're trying to, trying to picture what it might have been like to be there in AD 27 or whatever year that was, that Nazareth synagogue. What about the crowd? How did they respond to what they hear? Once they get over the shock of it, once it started to sink in, what did they make of it? Luke doesn't leave us guessing. He tells us they loved it. Verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at these gracious words from his lips. Isn't that brilliant? That's the kind of Jesus we know and expect. This is the Jesus we learned about in Sunday school. His wise teaching, his powerful healings, his love for everyone. Jesus isn't Marmite. He's more like what the Americans call mom and apple pie. Have you heard of that? Mom and apple pie means something that's so widely loved that you couldn't say a bad word against it. You couldn't argue against it. That's Jesus. That's the Sunday school Jesus. Maybe the Jesus you're running with in your mind. Everyone loves Jesus. You might have picked up that idea of Jesus somewhere along the way, but it's not the real Jesus. Because it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Look down at verses 28 to 30. Same gathering, same crowd of people, and we're told that all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down. This crowd had been loving Jesus. Moments later, they're ready to kill him. What's happened? What could he possibly have said that would provoke this kind of reaction? Well, Luke tells us that the problem begins in the minds of the people. Verse 22. In the same moment where they find themselves swept off their feet by Jesus' wonderful teaching, we find them saying, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? Your man Sure we know him We know where he's from He's nothing special It seems like a a kind of a familiarity breeds contempt kind of thing going on here. And Jesus must have discerned it. It's what he says next that gets the crowd so furious it'll take a wee bit of getting their heads around it so Bear with me for a second and, and work with me. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Jesus is reacting to, to what he's heard them say or, or even to what he is reading in their minds because we, we see Jesus doing this once in a while in the Gospels where he reacts to the thoughts of people even before their words. What they're saying, is something like this, that's all very well, Jesus. You telling reading us from Isaiah, telling us that you've come to do all this amazing stuff. This good news for the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release for the oppressed. It's all very well saying that do it. Do it here. This town has plenty of problems too. There's poverty, there's oppression, there's captivity and blindness. Why don't you do it home? the same stuff that you have been doing in these other outlying towns. A wee bit more background from the other Gospels will help us at this point. Luke chooses, when he's telling us the the homecoming, the Nazareth story, to focus on what happens in the synagogue. But Matthew and Mark tell the story in a slightly different way. So look with me for a second at Mark's retelling Page 108 in chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel. Page 108. Sorry, 1008, 1008. In verses 5 to 6 of that chapter, Mark tells us that he couldn't do any miracles there, that, that is in Nazareth, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He, he doesn't do any miracles in Nazareth because of their lack of faith. God seems to be saying to us here that God doesn't work among faithless people. And, and this will help us very quickly to make sense of the, the Elijah and Elisha stories. Do you see those in, in Luke's text? Elijah and Elisha, you, you may know them from Sunday school days, you, you may not. If, if you don't know them, the Elijah stories in First Kings chapter 17 and the Elisha story in Second Kings chapter 5, both stories tell of a time when God's prophet went beyond God's people to be active, and to do powerful miracles. So in Elijah's case, he miraculously provided uh, food, uh, flour and oil for a woman in Sidon whose family were starving. In Elisha's case, he miraculously healed a Syrian army officer, uh, so from beyond the borders of Israel. So Jesus seems to be implying that just like Elijah and Elisha had to go and work outside of the people of God. So the people in Nazareth lack faith, and that's why his powerful healing work is happening somewhere else. When God's people are faithless, he bypasses them and goes and finds somewhere else to work. Whether we have understood that or not, the people in Nazareth that day did, and that's why they dragged him out of the synagogue and were ready to kill him. Folks, Nazareth had a problem with Jesus. They had allowed their familiarity with him to breed contempt for him, and I think it's worth pausing for a second to think about that. We're not familiar with Jesus in the same way that they were because we don't live 24-7 with uh, the Son of God in human skin. We won't ever have that experience. But I think we're, we're familiar with Jesus in other ways. We and so many people who have grown up in Ulster have had the privilege of getting to know about Jesus Christ We live in one of the most evangelized countries in the world. Ulster is familiar with Jesus. Many of us here today have had the privilege of growing up in Christian homes where we were taught about Jesus. So our families are familiar with Jesus, pun intended. We are those people, many of us. We've grown up with them. This is something I think we need to take seriously as as teenagers and as young adults. We need to be saying to ourselves, right, I've grown up with Jesus. I know about him. I'm familiar with him. But what am I going to do with him? Am I growing in loving commitment to him? Or is something else happening? Is my heart turning hard? Is my familiarity leading to some kind of contempt? One last question. I wonder about us as a church family. Is there a danger that this dynamic could be at work among us? I think we've been extraordinarily blessed here over the years. In recent times. We've seen God work in this place in ways that only a small handful of churches in in Ireland have seen. We've seen Jesus, his word and his spirit work among us and affect changes in this place. But is there a danger we might be taking all that for granted? That we're losing a love and and a reliance on him? If so, let's be warned because he sees it. He sees our hearts, and where there is no present active faith in him, he'll bypass us. And he'll go to work where there is faith in him. Very much more quickly, these last couple of chunks that we didn't read. If you just you'll need to look at them because we, we haven't read them this morning. In verses 31 to 37, Luke tells us about a trip that Jesus makes to Capernaum. That's the the place we've been talking about in contrast to Nazareth. We, We know that he's already performed miracles there. He must have found the openness in Capernaum that he didn't find in Nazareth. So again, he's in the synagogue and again, he's preaching. But this time he's interrupted when a voice shouts out from the crowd, ha! Do you want us? What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And it's it's kind of strange behaviour. But then Luke explains it for us. Verse thirty three: the man was possessed by a demon, an evil or unclean spirit. I wonder what you make of that. People tend to go or often go to one of two extremes on this question of evil spirits or demon possession so on the one hand you say nonsense that that doesn't exist that's an old fashioned superstitious way of talking about a, a troubled mind a person with psychiatric problems that's one extreme the other extreme is to say yes evil spirits demon possession see it all the time every day usually before my first coffee And somewhere in the middle, I think there's room to say, Satan is real. He has spirits who, who work in his service. And we shouldn't be surprised if occasionally we see the manifestations of them. Even in our modern secular times. It might help you to know, I don't know where you sit on this, it might help you to know that in the last uh, 10 days I've twice spoken to a person who believes that they have been confronted by a demonic spirit. Big area. Not, not easily dealt with in this setting. So set it there for a second. What happens when a demon confronts Jesus Christ? He silences it, tells it to leave the guy alone, and the demon obeys. That's the big take home from this short passage. Jesus Christ is stronger than Satan or any of his minions. A couple of weeks ago, Richie helped us to think about the temptation in the desert. Jesus confronting Satan himself, and he Resists that temptation. Today we see Jesus Christ, who is stronger than Satan, is also stronger than any expressions of satanic uh, work in the world. Jesus is stronger than the devil. Interestingly, Jesus is starting to do what He promised to do in the first part of our uh, passage today. He's setting a prisoner free. This guy, possessed of a demon, is is a prisoner. He has no freedom. He has lost his way. He's possessed by another. And Jesus Christ comes and sets him free. Last part of chapter four and last part of our passage today. We find Jesus in the house of a guy called Simon. Now we don't know who this is yet. Not from reading Luke's gospel. So we'll just take it as, as it is. Simon must be a married guy because his mother-in-law is living in with him. She's sick. And Jesus heals her. In fact, Luke moves on the narrative very quickly to tell us verse 40 that Jesus healed all sorts of people and that he's cast out many demons. So what we have here, if we take these passages, these verses together, is Jesus Christ um, healing spiritual and physical diseases. This is a comprehensive healing, saving work that Jesus does I want to finish today by quickly comparing these two towns Nazareth and Capernaum this passage reflects really well on Capernaum I think he's able to work there there must be faith there the people there have faith he works and in contrast to the people of Nazareth who are dragging Jesus out throwing him out ready to kill him The people in Capernaum wanted him to stay. Look at verse 42. They tried to keep him from leaving them. It's a lovely sentiment. And because it's in such stark contrast to Nazareth, I'm half waiting for Jesus to say, brilliant. At last somebody's welcomed me. I'll set up headquarters, Jesus Ministries. If somebody would build the place, put up the website, we're good to go. And we're Capernaum based. No. It's a lovely offer, but he doesn't take them up on it. You see, Jesus has places to go and people to see. Look what he says I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. I think there's something really important for us to grasp here too. If Nazareth has a warning for those of us who have hardened our hearts, Capernaum has a warning to people who, who love Jesus. In our desire to be with Jesus, we might just be saying something like this to Jesus. Jesus, we love having you with us. Stay with us. Come on, let's, let's be together. Let's us have a nice time Here. To which Jesus replies, My children, I love you. It's great that you want to be with me, but you can't keep me to yourselves. I've got places to go, I've got people to see, I've got a whole load of other people to call into the kingdom. If you really want to be with me, then come with me to the places where I'm going to go. Let's go together and reach more people in your neighborhood, in your city, in Ireland, in the world. The only way to be with me and to stay with me is to go with me to the places I'm going to join me in my mission to the world. We're learning here in Luke's gospel about Jesus Christ. And we're seeing that he tended to divide people into those who loved him and those who hated him. He once said this, his own words, he who is not with me is against me. Makes me wonder. Should probably make us all wonder. A- am I with them? Or am I against them? Shall we pray? Father God, we have created a caricature of your son. We've made him into mom and apple pie. We've made him into that person that everybody loves because he was so bland and did and said so little that would challenge us. And challenge who we are. Father we thank you that Jesus was so much more than that. We thank you that he was perfect goodness. We thank you that he. Cuts like a knife through butter. Through. Our hearts. Lord we pray that you would work in us by your spirit. Alert us, awaken us to the reality of your son, Jesus, who he really is. And Lord, I pray for each one of us that we will not have a contempt for him, but that any familiarity that we have would express itself in growing love and greater commitment. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.